Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is Internet Marketing. So I'm here with Todd Duncan, author of High Trust Selling and founder of The Duncan Group. And I went pretty quickly from a pre-podcast conversation straight into recording with Todd because I said to Todd that, um, you know, we're going to be discussing failing today and failure and how to lean into failure. And that I was really interested in hearing uh, Todd's experiences and thoughts, particularly any thoughts that can help marketers uh, and creative people. And Todd said to me, we could talk about this for days. Well, I, you know, maybe maybe at some point I'll do uh, a podcast that spans 48 hours. I'm not there yet, but Todd, welcome to the podcast. I look forward to discussing this with you. Uh, awesome to be with you, Scott, and thank you for the opportunity to just have a, a real, authentic, transparent conversation about one of the great gifts for anybody in business, especially marketers and creatives. And uh, so I'm excited. Yeah, you're, you're like I mentioned in the intro there, you're an author, you're the founder of the Duncan Group. You're probably the only person that I can introduce and mean it as a compliment when I say you're a specialist in failure. So <laughs> that's, <laughs> uh, and maybe, maybe just as a starting point. So, it, you know, you touch on these kind of themes in high trust selling and it's been part of your career from my research, at least, uh, just understanding and getting comfortable with what failing is. But yeah, in your own words, I'm just curious to know, when did the experience and curiosity of failure really come on your radar in your career? Yeah, I think um, I think that the, the the earliest recollection I have it is right right after university. Um, I had an opportunity to um, get into the real estate and finance business, and I remember early on as a 23 year old university graduate that um, I'm making sales calls and 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 trying to engage with people was a lot harder than I thought it would be. And I'm a pretty charismatic kind of outgoing guy, but. You know, in that world, it was interesting because um, if you didn't have a lot of value, you would get shut down. And I think that's true for anybody in business that if the value exchange isn't high enough and you attempt to engage a business relationship or a transaction, um, you're not going to get it like you thought maybe you would get it. And so I had to really kind of scratch my head for a moment. And after about three months of really not having much victory in, in, in doing either one of those things, um, selling real estate or financing real estate, I, uh, I decided to uh, stop what I was doing because it didn't feel right and hmm. rethink my strategy. And I think a lot of people 
think that tenacity is a really strong gift and perseverance is a really strong gift. And I would agree that they are, with the exception of if you're tenacious and, and perseverant um, with wrong strategy, with wrong ideation, with wrong thinking, then you're inviting failure in. And so part of the story is, what could I do to change that? And what could I do to change the attraction factor so that I wouldn't have so many failed sales calls? So I began talking to a friend of mine and, um, and he said, and, and I remember this as clear as day, and it's, it's a message for everybody um, in internet marketing and the world. And it is, did you know that there is a direct relationship between failure and success? And I go, what do you mean? He goes, success isn't even possible if it were not also possible to fail. Just like day is not possible if there were no such thing as night. Fast is not possible if there's no such thing as slow. And when is it possible if there's no such thing as loss? And it was really a cool perspective because he said the difference between winning sales and, and marketeers and those that, that don't is not that they invite failure, but when it happens, they see it as good. And they see um, the opportunity to think about like, what is the lesson that I've learned from this? Or what is the lesson that this experience has taught me? And the key, I think, Scott, would be to minimize the repetition of whatever would lead to the same failure repeated time and time and time again. So theoretically, failure is the launch pad for success. It's part of the equation. Uh, if you're failure resistant, um, your success will not appear and be abundant like you'd like it to be. And if you embrace failure, then you don't invite fear into the space of your mind. You invite faith into the space of your mind and you learn the lesson and then you go and execute again. And I think that's, you know, we can study any great innovation ever in the history of innovations. And I got to imagine the, the Mesopotamians who decided to try to build a quote wheel out of wood probably did not make it work right out of the gates, right? There probably were some flaws to that. And yet today here we have rims and tires and, you know, things that were made possible by an, an early innovator of building a wooden wheel to power a, a, a cart drawn by a horse to move agriculture from one space to the other 6,000 years ago, you know? So it's just <laughs> like, okay. And if you look at anything, I mean, like look at Elon Musk. How many failed SpaceX projects has he had in trying to return a SpaceX rocket ship to the ocean and not have it blow up? And it is many. It is very, very, very incredible to see how just everything was a tweak. Let's improve. Let's improve. Let's improve. Let's improve. And now you can bring a rocket from space all the way back down to a launching pad that's 50 by 50 floating in the ocean. But it took seven years to get that to work. You know, so that I think it very easy kind of point of discussion to launch our time together. Um, failure is a blessing. You just got to, you got to rewire your brain to think what's good about this and what do I do so that it doesn't repeat unnecessarily. And that's a good starting point for us. Mm. Did you say it was a friend that gave you that advice? Yeah. Yeah. He was actually a guy that I ran into in those first three months that I didn't know. And he, he looked when I saw him in the marketplace, he just looked really successful, you know, not ostentatious, not over, over, you know, anything trying to be something he was not. He just looked clean and he looked good. He had a beautiful suit on. He had um, nice kind of chemistry and charisma. He had a smile on his face and 
he was eight years further ahead than I was. And so obviously he had learned a lot of those lessons and it, it was, it was kind of interesting. I got rejected probably a thousand times in those first three months. And he said, do you know why you were rejected? And I said, no, why? And he said, because you didn't set an appointment, you made a cold call. And the second thing is you didn't send something in advance of the appointment to get the person you wanted to meet with excited about what the appointment might yield. And he said, if you did that and then add a referral into that, so I, I, I send something that gets them excited. Uh, there's a referral in what I send. So they have trust already because somebody they trust says, trust this guy. And then when you call for the appointment, you no longer have call reluctance. You have call excitement because you get to meet with somebody that was referred to you and responded positively. And it was like he was doing that at scale. And I was getting no, 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 no. You know, it was just like, okay, how many no's can you endure? And a lot of people say, just keep going. It's never a matter of if, it's only a matter of when. It's always going to be a matter of if, if you don't have the right strategy. You just can't keep making calls that don't work, or you can't keep sending auto marketing that doesn't work. You can't, you got to be you got to be very, very centric on let's keep improving. And I think that at the end of the day, I kind of wake up today and I look forward to executing something and knowing with my team that we embrace failure. And how do we do this wrong quickly? You know, it's, it's just a great question. How do let's not wait three months and try and get it perfect. How do we do this wrong tomorrow and learn from it? And somewhere in between, there's the magic. How important do you think it was that that person was someone that you could actually, you could see the results of the advice that they were giving? Because I say that because I think we all hear that kind of advice in life, but it's easy to read in a book, maybe listen to a on a podcast and dismiss. But the difference is you got that advice from someone that you knew and then you could see the results of it. Do you think that was impactful? I, I think that when we look um, to the concept of modeling, you know, in some in some instances we we call it uh, swipe swipe and adapt. You know, we watch somebody or learn from somebody, and we adapt it into our own situation. The motive for doing that is to um, twofold. I think one expedite our positive results, and then right behind that would be minimize our negative setbacks. Right, and yet in the context of failure and success setbacks are good unless they are avoidable because you had a different sense of focus or you had a different kind of preparation around it, or you did this or you did that. And again, repeating, you don't want to keep doing the same thing over and over and over again and thinking you're going to get some result because you just keep doing it. And so for me, it was like, first of all, the guy had eight more years of experience than I did. Second of all, he was in the top 1% of producers in the four cities that I was actually working in and selling. And then the third thing is he invited me in. And I think what mentors do is because at one point they were mentored, they feel an obligation as a former mentoree to then mentor somebody else and bring them up. The world is full of success stories about modeling, you know, looking at people where you want to be, looking at people that do what you want to do, looking at people that have the kind of success that you would like to have and being curious and asking questions. And the top producer, whether it's marketing, creative, screenplay, it doesn't matter. They know, like, like imagine if you were a perfectionist and you didn't want your screenplay to fail and it took an extra five years to write your screenplay, but it still had flaws 
And you could have avoided that had you just given up perfectionism and understood that the creative is responsible for the storyline. The creative is responsible for the message, right? And then the editors and post-production and all that are responsible for making sure that whatever parts weren't like you may be worth trying to perfect, then they have insight on that, right? And so I think sometimes we get too deep in the weeds to try to create something that's perfect when in fact that's a failed strategy because it'll never be perfect. And think about the time saved if I don't do it loosely or randomly or irresponsibly, but what I do do is I take action. And um, it is in the action that you get the results. It is in that action that you get the feedback loops. It's in that action that you see what your, you know, what your open rates are, what your click-through rates are. You could toy and play and A-B test and all that kind of stuff. But marketing is one massive messaging innovation that sometimes works well and sometimes works poorly. And, you know, anytime that you have a marketing message that doesn't perform like you want, the healthy thing is, okay, why? And what can we do differently? And what are the parallels? And what are some directions that we took that did work well? And how do we replicate that without repeating that same message? That's kind of the thinking that goes in into this whole idea of, of failing um, well, making failure your friend. As my, my good friend, Dr. John Maxwell says, failing forward. Though, If you don't have a healthy attitude towards failure, you will fail backwards. And then pretty soon, fear will take over and you won't move. You just won't move forward. So it's a really deep discussion point for people to understand. And and in the midst of something not working like you wanted it to, think about the idea of how far we maybe go with something. And then when we maybe doubt it, how close do we really think we are to like the finish line or the goal? And why do so many people stop when they're so close to the goal? It's because they don't have a healthy perspective of the final moments of fear that are going to get this thing over the finish line or over the goal line. And I think that's the the mindset. The mindset of winners and the mindset of people that do well and go far is that they don't run away from failure. They lean into it and they understand it and they see the power of it. And failure is just a word assigned to an experiment that didn't quite turn out. How many times did, you know, whomever, like like Henry Ford or Thomas Edison or Einstein, I mean, like how many times did something they were theorizing or thinking about not pan out? And it's a preposterous number compared to the final product or the final result or the final this or the final that. In fact, if we go back to, if we go back to, um, Edison, he had an event in his life when he was 64 years old, and his entire factory burned down. Um, everything, everything he had spent his life working for had been destroyed in this fire of his compound. And he was asked shortly after the fire, he said, uh, he was asked the question, you're always a positive thinker. What's the positive of your entire complex being burnt to the ground? And his response was, the good news about this complex being burnt to the ground is all of my mistakes and failures have gone up in smoke. And it was like, wow. And then two months later, he invents the phonograph, you know, and Apple Music and Spotify and, and you know, all these things. They wouldn't even be, they wouldn't even be in existence if at some point somebody didn't create something that would allow you to hear music from some medium 
that it was engraved in and etched in. And, and here today, everything's digital, right? All of that is a, a 75, 80 year procedure because one guy, one guy after losing it all invents the phonograph. It's so interesting when you look back like that, because history tells us, as you've just provided some examples there, that failure is on the journey to success. It's all part of the same journey. And yet we still have this, particularly in marketing and any creative discipline, really, we Mm -hmm. still have this issue with expecting fast results and expecting to get it right the first time. So despite what history tells us, despite what study tells us, there's something, there's some kind of industry or internal pressure that forces this level of perfectionism. Have you ever considered like why that exists and where that comes from? I think there's a couple things that at least for me resonate. I can't, I, I, I was the first child in our family and, and my mom came from kind of a broken home and, you know, had some, had some issues uh, with emotional abuse and things like that. And uh, having their first child, my mom and dad, you know, my mom is a perfectionist. She's 90 years old today. Um, she's always been a perfectionist and to the point of so much orienting around perfectionism, she wanted a perfect son. And, um, and, and as we all know, none of us are ever going to be perfect, period. And add to the layer of that, that not only was it very clear to me that my mom was trying to make me perfect, but it was also very clear and hurtful to me that she categorized me as a failure. And it didn't matter whether it was, you know, Little League baseball. It didn't matter whether it was uh, high school football. It didn't matter whether it was, you know, some qualification in a swim meet that I missed or this, that, or the other thing. She, she, she always made it very clear that, that I had failed. And so I grew up with kind of a pretty heavy failure complex. I remember one time I was in the mountains trying to qualify for this uh, 12-week summer intern program. And there was 20, 20 young adults, uh, male and female, qualifying for this. And you had to be up there a week, and, you know, a week before you would uh, be accepted into the program. And one of the things you had to do is you had to perform athletically in a way that you know showed that you had the stamina to do this job at you know 7,000 feet in the mountains. And part of that was jogging every morning and having to run five miles. I am not, I'm, I'm, you know, I've always been tall. I'm six, five and running for me is not like what I'm good at. And and to make matters worse, I was probably a little bit overweight as a, a, a junior or senior in high school. And I couldn't run. I couldn't run with the rest of the group. I could do everything else, but I couldn't run. I always had to stop to catch my breath. And uh, at the end of the trial week, I remember the director coming to me and saying, I'm really, really sorry. We, we really like you, but you, you did not qualify for the Blue Helmets program. And um, we've called your parents. And so your mom's on her, on her way to pick you up. So my mom drove for two and a half hours with the idea that I just got rejected from a camp because I didn't qualify physically. So first of all, two hours of pent up emotion on her end, not knowing how to manage perfectionism. And then I get in the car and for two hours home, I just get riddled with why did you fail? Why didn't you make it? You know, this, that, and the other thing. And so I don't know if that ended up being a positive for me, but as soon as I got out of college and started understanding what I wanted to prove, probably first to myself and second to my mother was the fact that I'm not a failure. Um, I just wasn't in my lane. I wasn't doing something 
that I was actually good at, gifted at, right? And even if you're gifted at it, like I have a friend that's a very gifted brain surgeon, and he has made mistakes in surgery that were unavoidable mistakes and some that were avoidable. And, you know, it's like, as soon as you have knowledge and as soon as you have confidence, then you can begin to succeed at a higher clip, a higher pace. And I just decided to do that right out of university. And then, you know, here I am today, having run this organization for 29 years, we have 6 million clients around the globe. And uh, two weeks ago, I was driving my mother home from a restaurant and she told me I was going the wrong way. And she's 90 years old. So bless her heart, you know, bless her heart. That's what she's lived with. And I've, I've forgiven her and we, you know, and it is what it is. But I think there's a lot of that that goes on. And then there's a lot of self-doubt. It's like the word fear is paralytic. If you're ever afraid of doing something um, and it's the right thing for you to do, all it means is you have not either prepared the right way or you haven't gotten from competency to confidence. And I'll give you one example. Uh, I'm a private pilot. And one of the, one of the things that I enjoy doing is, is recreational flying. And when I first started flying, the, the easy part was starting the, the airplane. The easy part was configuring it to take off. The easy part was, you know, uh, pushing, pushing the throttle and, and pulling back the yoke and getting airborne. And all of that was easy. The hard part was landing. And anybody that's a bi- pilot will appreciate the idea that that probably is the most important part other than flying the plane and looking out your window and radar to make sure there's no other planes coming around. So I couldn't land the plane in a way that was acceptable. It wasn't on the other side risky, but it just wasn't fluid. It was, it was those abrupt kind of hard landings, crosswind landings, things like that. And I came home one day and I, and, and I, I obviously looked poorly physiologically in my face. And my wife said, what happened? And I said, honey, I can't land a plane. And she looked at me and she said, why would you think you can land a plane? You've been flying for like two weeks. And I just said, oh my gosh. And she says, all you have to do is practice landings until you're good at landings. And I'm going, wow, that's a great idea. So I I told my instructor, I said, all I want to do is practice landings. He goes, okay. So I practiced landings for two months. 176 landings. And now I can land an airplane like a feather on a cloud. But it was that practice. It was that, okay, I've got to do it. I I, got to be able to get the plane on the ground because nobody can take over. Therefore, then I have to practice more than I fly to the point where now I have confidence and I can consistently. So there's a competence, confidence, consistency I can consistently land the plane well. Maybe one out of every 10 have a little bit of a hard bounce or something like that. But that's the idea. And so I tell people all the time, if you don't practice more than you play, when you play, you'll look like you haven't practiced. And I cannot overemphasize how important getting ready is for doing something. And I have to emphasize waiting for perfection to do something is completely the wrong way to do it. So there's a balancing act. Again, back to failure and success. Firstly, happy birthday to your mother. 90 is a good age. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And um, what's interesting about that as well is that you said your wipe prompted a little bit of the reflection about how you would approach failure in that instance. So despite your comfort, your level of self-reflection, your study, 
of failing, it still took a prompt from your wife in that instance to say, hey, maybe give this a try. I find that quite interesting. Yeah, and 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 a gift, right? A yeah. Gift. And, and then it would promote in anybody listening to us, Scott, the idea of, okay, I could have looked at my wife and said, you know what? You're so right. Every landing that goes less than well is a chance to ask one question. What could I have done better? Like this didn't turn out like I wanted it to. What could I have done better? Or if you find yourself in a failure state and you can't quite get beyond the negativity of it, how about a question like this? What's good about this? And I got to tell you that anybody that has an experience that, that turns out less than what they had actually visualized, when they ask what's good about this, they actually get closer to success. Like what went right? I want to emphasize that. That's the positivity. What's the lesson learned? I want to emphasize that. That's the positivity, right? And I want to move from this level of, of fear, which is negative, and I want to reframe that word as a positive. So people that, that get stalled or they, they don't take action because of some level of fear, they're actually projecting onto the future something that hasn't yet happened. And, and a perfect example would be in, in the sales world, making sales calls, right? If you and your mind go, I'm about ready to make a sales call and I'm not sure this is turn out okay, it's not going to turn out okay. Just like when you stand in the tee box with your driver and you're going to try and hit a great shot 300 yards down the fairway, if in your mind you're going, I, I suck at my drives, um, you're going to, it doesn't matter how much you visualize it going down the middle of the fairway, if your self-talk is negative, it's not, unless it's pure luck, going to go down the center of the fairway. And so, and even then it's like, how many golf shots in a round of 18 holes are perfect? And you look at that and you go, you know what? Not many. They're close, but they're, you know, and, and what's the measurement? The measurement is I got to go from the tee box to the cup. The faster I do that and the less strokes it takes, the better I am at the game of golf. And it's that, it's that kind of straightforward. And so what's good about it? And what's the lesson learned? And we've all heard that definition of insanity, I think, originally given uh, credit to Mark Twain. And then Jim Rohn made it very, very popular again, was this idea of you can't just keep doing what doesn't work. You got to change direction, change the street you're on, change the client you're working with, change the agency, change anything, right? But if you're not changing and you're accepting less than negative results, fear is going to be negative. Now, let's take a look at the word fear and say, well, what's positive about it? Well, like right now, so let me use the airplane example again. I used to be fearful of landing because I was projecting on the landing, which hadn't happened yet, how poorly I had done previously. Well, that's the wrong way to set yourself up for a landing at 100, 140 miles an hour, right? And so when when I went through the the process of getting good at it. Now what I do is I still look at the word fear, but when I land an airplane now, the four letters in fear stand for feeling excited and ready. Think about the difference in your mindset when you think about fear as false experiences appearing real. They haven't happened yet. You've given your power away to an event that hasn't happened. Think about that. And then think about the same word going, you know what? I am so prepped 
for this sales call, or I am so excited about the value that I'm going to add, or I am so blessed by the referral I got to this person. I can't wait to make the phone call. Think about the difference. I don't want to make the phone call to I can't wait to make the phone call. In a very simple, I go from being afraid to land to I can't wait to land. And now I have no pressure during the flight because I'm not thinking while I'm flying that pretty soon I got I got to land. And that's always a scary thing. Now it's like, enjoy the whole ride because you're good at one piece of the ride that you were not good at, that complicated everything and sent negativity and negative energy and negative self-talk to your brain. And it doesn't mean that you loosen the grip and throw caution to the wind and close one eye and say, I'm going to land this thing. But it does mean I have a confidence and a competency level that I didn't have. And that moved it from failing at landing to succeeding at landing. But I could never succeed at landing if I had not had all of those early failures on how not to land a plane. So I think that's important. And then you look this summer, you look at this past summer and Branson and Musk and Bezos all take their spaceships to outer space. Branson was the first guy up, first guy to come back. He's been working on this for 17 years. and And now all three of these guys have redefined potentially space travel and what that looks like. 70 years probably combined energy trying to get all three of the projects off the ground, pun intended. That was a good point. Um, These self-reflections and questions that you ask yourself, how long did it take from that period in your early 20s before that became just a part of your character, that became a habit to kind of repeat those questions to yourself and go through this this process of self-reflection? I think the gift for me, Scott, is I learned it probably within the first 12 months. It didn't mean that that things went swimmingly well after that. Um, and in fact, some of my most um, potentially catastrophic failures happened 20 years later, you know, and, and, and we can talk about that briefly. But I think what I got a sense of by the time I was probably 25 was failure is real and most people quit. And if I can have a positive, reflective, inviting, abundant mindset around failure, I will outperform anybody that I compete against. I will call on people they don't call on. I will add value to people they don't add value to. I will have um, demand pull in the market because it'll get around that I'm good and that I make a difference and then I create impact. And then it began to be so reflective that our my company asked me if I would start teaching on failure and role playing, why people are afraid to pick up the phone and make a call. Why do we hide behind tech today? You know, when we want to create business relationships, um, tech is tech's not a problem and it's not, it's not going away. It's here to stay. But if you have high trust, you have connection, whether you have tech or not. If you lead with tech, all you do is you have tech, which is speed and and the digital experience. But if you don't have trust behind tech, then tech doesn't have value. It's the balancing act of high trust and high tech with high touch. And that gets into the marketing piece because I want to really be good at creating marketing messages, particularly in today's society, that are really tugging at the emotional heartstrings. In fact, the, the larger a sale is or the more comprehensive a product launches or just in day-to-day, you know, marketing and retention marketing and things like that, you got to understand that there's a lot of stuff we do that does not resonate with the recipient of whatever the message is. And, you know, we know that and we look at 
the proverbial Super Bowl ads. You know, we look at the ones that are really work and we look at the ones that kind of fail. And um, you got really powerful ad agencies behind all of them, right? So what's the difference? Well, it's the message and it's like the attraction and it's like the emotional connection to the message. So if we lead with emotion and then support with tech and we measure, we really, really measure, then we can get some powerful results. There's a book called Marketing Rebellion. um, And uh, the author talks about the four big myths in automation marketing. And it is crazy, Scott, to see how much marketers think their messaging is working and how the reverse is from the consumer's point of view that no, it's not working. And when Mark Schaefer wrote this book, it was like, holy cow. And what we do with marketing automation is we keep marketing and we keep marketing and we keep marketing. But all we're really doing is creating digital noise And so, like, if you really understand the power of messaging, you would be really concerned about how fast the message gets dropped, dripped, thrown away, or unsubscribed. And it's like, holy cow. So, you know, this whole thing applies to, to everything in the business world, just literally everything. And then I think the other piece of the answer is just because I figured it out at age 25, We always, sadly, get reminded of the failure message when we forget it and do something and we fail. And I had a a fairly catastrophic uh, business failure. I was 46 years old. I was retired. I I loved writing books. I've written 17 books. And and I bought a large leadership company because I do a lot of sales training and marketing training. And I figured, why don't I buy a leadership company? It happened to be one of the largest leadership companies in America. And, um, and that way behind every leader is a salesperson. And the long and short of it is I bought this company. Um, my company had 40 employees and we're probably a $10 million firm and good profitability. And within about two months, I had 400 employees and I tried to merge two different cultures that I was not, I wasn't competent in doing that. And the fact that I was six states away from our base office also was a problem. But I made two mistakes. I let the CEO that ran the 40-person company run the new company. Um, and that doesn't mean he's a bad CEO. He's just not a growth CEO. And so he lost the reins and control. And then I did not have the right uh, boundaries on check writing authority. And so my CFO took advantage of his signature authority. And, and actually, we ran out of money very, very fast. And I had to put almost $9 million into this purchase to keep the business going. And that's not my idea of like... Let's go make some money and then let's let's put it all into a company that's falling apart. <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's not a good idea. And so anyway, I made the, the decision after two years, I'm going to sell that company. I'm going to take my old company back. And I was able to do that. I was able to, to divest myself of the company that I had acquired. But it cost me nearly $10 million to go through the whole experience, buying it, putting money in, and selling it at a loss. And I'm sitting here going, I teach people how to be successful. And I have now just executed the largest business failure of my life. And if that's not bad enough, just a few uh, few months after selling that company, my wife was diagnosed with terminal cancer and was in hospice within a week and she passed away. And so I've got two little boys that are 13 and 11. I've got a massive business failure. I have about a million dollars in cash left. I've got real estate I got to pay for. I've got expenses I got to pay for. And I've lost my wife and I've lost my money. And it's like, wow. 
what's good about this? <laughs> That's <laughs> right? a very and hard like, question to ask yourself at that time, isn't it? Yeah. It's just so, so what's good about it? Well, what's good about it is I'm alive. What's good about it is my boys are alive. What's good about it is I divested fast enough to not put another nine million into it. And what's really important is I learned a lesson of why don't I just have a mindset now that I'm going to keep it small and keep it all and tighten the company down and then get back to those profitability. It took nine years, Scott, to get back on top financially, to pay off debt, to, um, to reassert my brand authority and get the company going again. All that stuff, part of the kind of the recovery, if you will. And then I think the interesting thing is that the lesson learned was I'm not an M&A guy. I shouldn't have bought the company in the first place. Um, I should have hired a growth CEO. I should have had check signing authority. Shoulda, shoulda, shoulda. So three lessons. And now all those lessons are learned. I still today now, what, 10 years later, I sign all the checks that leave our companies. And I don't let anybody have check signing authority because I learned it. And I don't want to learn it again because it was really painful. But here's the end of the story. So Success Magazine calls me and they have learned about this business failure because they know the guy that I bought the company from. And I was asked to do an interview um, with Darren Hardy. And the issue was entitled, the internal code for the, the issue was the big fat failure issue. So imagine a magazine reaching out to you and saying you saying to you, we're doing an edition called the Big Fat Failure Edition, and we'd like to interview you on your failures. I'm going, oh my, because that's now time, right? It's time for transparency. It's time for authenticity. Do I really want to, you know, open the kimono and 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 tell my story? And Darren calls me and he says, listen, all I think that I want out of this is the millions of entrepreneurs around the world. I want them to hear how you survived. Um, what's good about this? What's good about losing almost everything? Well, what's good about it is I now have a new passion for helping people understand the power of failure and the power of it in your life. And, you know, and now I wake up and I go, let's get failure going. Let's, let's fail fast. Let's fail forward. Let's fail well. Let's fail and heal. Let's learn lessons. Let's fix. Let's repeat. And it's all we have to do. And then just make less and less of the mistakes because you're a little bit more thoroughly prepared. And then begin to look at your risk tolerance in everything you do. And before you ever make a decision that could fail, ask yourself, what's the likelihood of this not working out? Or the other question is, what do I need to do to make sure it does work out? I didn't seek mentoring when I bought that company. Um, I did it because my friend owned it. And I thought that's all that really mattered. We had the same values. We had the same, you know, kind of aspirations to impact people and change lives. But at the end of the day, he got, he got, he got money and took it off the table and I put money in and had to sell it and get it off the table ultimately anyway. But Millions of people now understand the power of failure because of that one experience. Now, one thing that strikes me when you're talking all this through is you said that you had been involved in training people around the topic of failure or getting other people comfortable with failure. You've also written about it in your books and you're speaking about it in podcasts. So what I'm thinking here is that not only have you self-reflected and gone through the process of framing failure for yourself, but then sharing that lesson I'm curious to know whether you think that's also helped you become more comfortable with failure than most other people because you've addressed it head on 
and you've thought about how you need to communicate your messages about failure to other people. Has it helped? I unquestionably would say yes. And for a lot of reasons, I think that I think people until they um, until they really understand the power of this, I think people are operating at less of their potential and capacity. And I, um, and I, and I think that because people don't have a healthy attitude towards being okay with it not going swimmingly or perfectly well, they don't take action. And I tell people, and this is something for everybody listening to our time together, I tell people that the wrong way is the right way because it teaches you a better way. And if there's not a more healthy perspective on failure than that, I don't know what is. And so to to answer the question even more directly, I take it very seriously in every presentation I have and every conversation I have to find out what you know you need to do, but you're not doing it because of a negative perception around failure. So I'm in Miami two weeks ago, and I have a thousand people in the audience that are all that are all uh, marketers and and, and professional um, uh, direct selling independent contractors, and and I'm having a conversation, um, and I asked them. I said, by a show of hands, how many of you right now know that there is a person that you would like to recruit into the business, but that you have not yet called them because you're not sure how it's going to go. Put your hands up in the air and every single, as far as I could see, and it was a big room, but as far as I could see, every hand in the room was up. And I said, so why have you been waiting? And I jumped off the stage, three foot stage, jumped down to the the ground in the ballroom carpet and started walking around. And it was interesting. Um, Fear. Don't know what to say. Not sure that this is going to resonate with them. And there's like a hundred excuses on why haven't you made the call? And I said, um, I said, why don't you just try this script? And I gave him a, like a 10 word script and, um, and see how that works. Would you be, would you, would you commit to me today that if I gave you this, this 10 word, how to get somebody excited about listening to the business opportunity, you would do it. And everybody's hand went up. So Scott, I've never done this before in my life. I said, okay, let's not wait for this. Everybody get your cell phones out. And I want, I want to see your phones in the air. I want every cell phone in the air. And on the count of three, I want you to dial the person that you said you haven't called because you're afraid of calling them. And I said, everybody, everybody knows what we're doing, right? And so I go one, two, three. And we have a two minute and 17 second video of a thousand people making a phone call. Some didn't feel really, really good. Some took way too many words. There was a whole bunch of stuff that wasn't working out the right way. And um, in two minutes and 30 seconds in, um, almost everybody had made the phone call and either left a message or, or talked to somebody. And I said, so raise your hands if that was easier than you had thought it would be five minutes ago. And everybody's hand went up. And the point I'm making, Scott, is we sit here and we procrastinate our, our personal and professional greatness because of fear. 
Well, that's the truest uh, testament of yeah. le- leaning into fear as well, and um, right. it, it, and leaning into it fast. Uh, Todd, yes. if if listeners want that ten word script, if they want to find <laughs> you, if they want to find you and learn more about failure, find out more of your content, or just connect with the uh, the Duncan Group, where can they find you? Yeah, so I'm on social. My handle is the same on every channel. It's Todd Duncan Official. And so you can, uh, you can join me there and we, we distribute video and our own podcasts and interviews and stuff like that. So that's, that's, that's great. Um, the, the, the 10, the 10 word kind of script, um, is the answer to a question. So, so I'll give you an example. So last Friday I was with 30 uh, multimillionaires. We were down, uh, on a yacht and we were having conversations about business growth. And one of the guys said, it's always interesting when I talk to my salespeople, I, I, I pose this kind of question, ask me, what do you do for a living? So like I would ask my salesperson, what do you do for a living? And they would be like all over the map, right? And, and so the idea of, of what do you do for a living should be responded to with both a, a verb and a noun. And I'll give you an example. So when people say, Hey, Todd, what do you do for a living? My response is I help people fall in love with their life. That's nine words. And I pause as soon as I say that. So somebody says, Hey, what do you do for a living? I go, you know, it's a, it's a really great question. I help, I actually help people fall in love with their life. And then I just shut up. And the next question from then is, how do you do that? And so now it opens the door because there's this nine word script. And so I told these guys, um, here's the one I would use. And it would be essentially, I help people because they're in the, they're in the beauty business, the international hair care business. And I go, this is what I would say. I help people build beautiful lives and get financially free. That's 10 words. I help people build beautiful lives and get financially free. Well, who wouldn't say, tell me how you do that. And when I said it to these thousand people, it's like lights out, right? Perfect. Well, Todd, if people ask, what was this podcast about? I will say we help people have fun failing. There's six words. That was pretty good. I I love it. I love it. I love it. We help people have fun failing. You are a master student, Mr. Scott. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for your time, Todd. Take care. Enjoy it.